0: Hello and welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. I'm your host, Charles Lego. Well, Happy New Year everyone. And I hope your New Year's resolutions, your commitments, your intentions, your wet January, whatever it may be. I hope that it's all still intact and dialed in and you're having a great start to 2023 and that you had a great holiday season. Well, here we are and welcome to season two of the Rancho Cordova podcast, brought to you by the California Capital Film Office. We brought you 14 episodes last year, and we kicked off this podcast on September 21st with a great conversation with a long-serving city manager, Cyrus Abar, who retired December 31st, and followed up with 13 additional conversations with leaders from across the city of Rancho Cordova leaders in all sectors, individuals who are shaping how we see our city today and in the future. And if you haven't checked out those episodes, I invite you to do so and welcome you to the first episode of our second season. We begin season two with a wide-ranging conversation with documentary filmmaker Bill George. Uh, Now, I'm going to say this and hopefully... um...
1: I've said it before, so it's not world news, and it's such an old event that nobody will probably care. But I had a good friend that I'd worked with in television news. He had gone; he had joined the State Department, and um, he. T- so I met up with him in Washington D.C. after I had interviewed her. Now there was another big news conference in Washington with all of them. It was a big deal that was in some huge amphitheater or something. All the hundreds of reporters he said the people that stayed behind in in the embassy because most of them had gotten out they're all spies he said all of them were intelligence officers her job was she was head of what was called the iran american association her job was to go out to parties to um to events And to meet the young movers and shakers of Iran, I have to say it right after the guy got it wrong,
0: right? Yeah.
1: Well, I've always said Iran. It wasn't
0: until I came here
1: where I heard Iran. Yeah, Iran. 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 and so he said basically she was a spy. So I kind of I can't remember how I phrased the question, but I said weren't you involved in trying to really actively recruit and influence young power shakers in Iran uh, for the United States? Wasn't that your job? And I mean the whole room kind of blew up, right? I mean people were like you shouldn't, you know. So it was very you interesting. Admit it?
0: Basically, yes. Yeah. She said yes, that was my job. Bill's new documentary Rancho Cordova from Gold Rush to Space will be released in conjunction with the city of Rancho Cordova's 20th anniversary of incorporation as a city later this year. Bill George has accomplished much in his 68 years. First right out of college he had an exciting career for several years as a TV news producer working in several large TV markets around the US and finally landing here in Sacramento at KCRA TV, the NBC affiliate. After several years, he pivoted to a career in business during which time he was appointed to a state role by the then governor of California, Pete Wilson. In his third act, he founded Nimbus Films which went on to produce several successful historical documentaries, and almost all of which have aired on the PBS station KVIE. He even found time to write and publish three historical nonfiction books. Bill and I had a truly interesting conversation that covered many of Bill's achievements as a journalist, TV producer, and today as a successful documentary filmmaker. I really enjoyed speaking with Bill, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Let me start off by asking, what is the PR Week Award for Best Use of the Internet? Well, thank Which is you. an award that you received. It
1: was, and I think it was 2003. So we're in the really early days of the Internet, right? So I devised a campaign for the automobile industry in California because they have many, many issues that are particularly to California. So we organized this campaign, and we used the Internet to actually have people send in emails of support for them and communicate with them. So as these bills are progressing through the legislature, we'd send out an email, and then all these people would either write into their legislators email in or call them. So the legislature was swarmed oh. with, with communications from people opposed to it. So we entered at the, uh, uh, the campaign. It's a PR week, um,
0: which I don't even know it's still around. Uh, I guess PR is. week is the, the, uh, the public relations trade magazine.
1: right, yeah. right. So that was, like I said, early ages of the internet. So we ended up winning the award. Wow, okay. And second place was Cisco Systems. So, so I like to say I beat out Cisco right. Systems. So almost like a political type of thing?
0: Yeah, it was yeah. legislative, not yeah. political. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, yeah, The
1: difference there. We weren't supporting a candidate, but
0: we were supporting or yeah, an issue in an industry, which is the auto industry. Okay. But you weren't done with PR Week because in the same vein, you also received an award from PR Week for the marketing launch of the Ford Focus, which is a hugely successful car for the Ford Motor Company. Um, what did you do to get
1: that award? So that wasn't from PR Week, that was from, that was Car of the Year Award, I think, from uh, one of the auto magazines. Oh, okay. It, one of the auto magazines, but anyway. So that was, um, like with the uh, PR Week Award campaign, I was very, I was involved in every aspect of that. Car of the Year Award's a bigger thing, and, Frankly, I mean, it didn't feel like I deserved to win it so much. It was an honor. We did a very, very innovative launch. But at Ford, which is a huge company, uh, so car of the year was, um, you know, the car got the award, all the engineers, all the things, and then they just kind of included everybody in it. But we
0: did do an amazing launch. I'm proud of the launch. Because the Ford Focus was a big car, right, for Ford?
1: It was a very big car, and the challenge was it was in Europe. It was known as a – family sedan-type car, right. Past, you know, kind of a boring, if you will, workmanlike car. In America, we tried to turn it into more of a novelty item, and I'm not sure that we succeeded in, in, in attaining all that, but we were, we were able to incorporate it into the Ford brand. It was popular here, okay. it wasn't a huge home run, but it right. did well, so.
0: And we're gonna get into you working for Ford, but we'll get to that later. But before we move on to all the great things that you've accomplished, and there are certainly many, um, we always get to know our guests. When we have guests, we get to know them. So why don't you tell us where were you born? Tell us about your parents, where you grew up, et cetera.
1: Okay, so I was born in a naval hospital in Miami Beach, Florida. Okay. Uh, my father was in the Marine Corps, which is a department of the Navy, and as the Marines like to say, it's the men's department. Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, he uh, was a naval, naval corpsman attached to the Marines, and I was born at St. Francis Hospital and the interesting thing about that is I've met several people who were born in that same hospital from all over the country because at the time it was a big, huge uh, hospital in Florida and lots and lots of servicemen, and Navy, Navy people, their kids were born there in the 50s. So that's where I came from. Uh, then um, my father, at my mother's behest, uh, he was uh, discharged uh, from the, from the Navy. We moved to Chicago, where my family was from. My father and mother uh, were Chicagoans. And uh, so we moved back there. Despite my my father, when he got out of, he was in the Korean War, actually was a real war hero. And um, so when he got out, he was discharged in Orange County. And he wanted to stay there, then they transferred on the floor. But he always wanted to go back there. But my mom's like, no, no, we're going, we're Chicago. We Orange to County, go back. California. Orange County, yeah. California, yeah. Uh, Camp Pendleton right. was where it was re- right. uh, let go. Uh, what's the word? Not released. But, you know, um, that's where he came back from right. Korea too. And he just loved it, wanted to stay there. But no, my mom was convinced we went to Chicago. So I went through grade school and uh, high school there. Uh, then I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Right, and, um, right. And then so we'll eventually get to
0: that. I, okay. So were you a good student at high school? I was a very
1: um, – yes, I was a good student. I was somewhat rebellious. I was in a boys' Catholic high school. And, I mean, I was a conservative at the time, um, I would say. But the, the times was – we're talking in the early 70s now – were very tumultuous. The late '60s, early '70s. There was all kinds of things going on in Chicago. The high school I went to was a boys' Catholic high school. Very buttoned down, um, very disciplined. In fact, when I was a junior, uh, the senior class year ahead of me, like eight or ten of them, were caught with marijuana. In like a month before graduation, they were all kicked out of high school. Shock and horror. Yeah, uh, shock yeah. and horror. Can you? Right. <laughs> and so, boom, out they went. So. Okay. Um, the school was different in that there were some disciplinarians, but there were some really brilliant people. Yeah. So we were studying like Tyhard D. Chardin, the Jesuit philosopher, um, Karl was Marx. Was it a Jesuit school? No, it was no? a Carmelite school. Oh, okay. But, you know, they they were, and said it, several of these priests, and they were priests in those days, now they're not, right. they're almost all uh, non clergy, uh, had studied in Rome and were very advanced in terms of philosophy, theology. So it was quite a load to take, and I, I like to say that when I went to college, it was really kind of easier yeah. in college than i have been there because of the rigorous things they put us through.
0: And your mother, was she a homemaker?
1: Yes, she was, yeah. and uh, she was a, a great woman. Um, she was in uh, a lot of volunteer things. She uh, ran the library, she ran the hot lo- local hospital, not run it, but she was very involved in those things, and, and was her whole life. So yeah we had there's four of us four kids so she yeah. kind of had her hands
0: full right. three boys and a girl and the girl was the best athlete in the family but that's another story <laughs> so you finish high school and then you end up at the um missouri school of journalism yes so did you want to be a journalist
1: yes yeah. i did um, so
0: at high school you said i'm going to be a journalist
1: well i wanted to be a writer and i had an uncle who was quite an eccentric character and he was taught at the University of Chicago, which was right near the high school I went to. And um, he said, look, um, you can't be a writer, you'll starve to death, you need to have a trade. And I said, well, I guess I'll go work for newspapers. He goes, don't work for newspapers. And I was on the school newspapers. Make sure you get into television because newspapers are dying. Wow. so he gave me he that knew
0: even back then
1: he knew back then Yeah, because they
0: weren't dying then
1: right well there was a lot of consolidation going on in those days so you know in big cities used to have seven eight newspapers right. and they were yeah they were folding up and, and the competition was coming from television yeah. mainly i think so people were transitioning from tv to uh, so to when broadcast. you went to
0: to the missouri school of journalism or the university of missouri right. school of journalism Did you did you go there to be a television journalist or just a journalist in general?
1: Television. They had a really good uh, broadcast uh, uh, program, so I went for that. And how was college? It was great. You know, who hasn't had a great college? Good grades,
0: and you liked it.
1: I didn't. I was again kind of an indifferent student. I'm one of these guys that gets into a class and really wants to figure out what's going on, and uh, not so much focused just on the grades. So you know, I was a. I had a fine appreciation for the gentleman C, as they say. So, (laughs) you know, I was uh, that type of student. But in my journalism classes, I excelled and and did very well in the TV. Now, the thing about it was that you had to go through two years of non-journalism stuff to get into the J school, as they called it. So that was an arduous two years. But once I was in there, and the thing about Mizzou, as we call it, Missouri, is that they had their own newspaper and their own television station which was the NBC affiliate in Columbia Missouri. It was so you actually get it still is and you still get actually get to work on the TV station producing newscasts. So I just loved that and I thought it was great. It was great training. Uh, we all had job and this is in uh, graduated in 77. The economy was the pits. We all had job offers. We all walked off campus into, you know, into
0: jobs. Yeah. So you went on to have a 42-year career as a journalist, which that in itself is is an <laughs> accomplishment. And right out of college, you land a job at WHO TV in Des Moines, Iowa, as a news reporter. Um, so was that an on-camera news reporter?
1: Yeah, actually, I was photographer reporter. So in those days, we did what they called the one-man band. They're which still, they still do. They're yeah. still doing it now. Yeah. So it was the one-man band thing. Sometimes you'd have a photographer. Sometimes I'd be the photographer and go out. So my first day on the job's kind of a funny story. I show up there and they say, oh great, you know, welcome Bill and uh, hang around the newsroom. You know, just maybe you'll go out with another crew and and learn the ropes. Well, uh, somehow everybody was out of the newsroom and then there was a hostage situation. This guy uh, took a couple of people hostage. It was kind of unusual for Des Moines. It was unusual for anybody. And it was like dog day afternoon where he's holding this person at knife point and all the media is there, and I'm the only guy from the station. So I run out there with a photographer, and we got the story. So I had the lead story on them. The, wow. A lot of people didn't even know I was working there until they looked up and saw who is wow. this guy, who's this kid, you know, 22 years old, on, on our lead story. So that and was great. What,
0: what kind were you, like you see on the local news? Did you cover everything? Accidents oh, yeah. and openings and
1: everything, yeah. I, I wanted to focus on uh, the legislature because I always like pol- politics. Uh, But um, I I had to be a general assignment reporter. We had an 88-year-old guy. I believe he was 88 years old. His name is George Mills, and George was a tremendous guy. Um, And so I produced a lot of his stuff because he'd been on the Des Moines Register for 40 or 50 years by the time he did it. So George kind of showed me the ropes. So he was like your producer. I was his producer. Oh, you? He he, he was on camera. Yeah. Oh, he's the camera guy. Yeah, and he had he had a very good delivery. You know, he'd be on there and he said. And so the Iowa legislature voted to approve the budget. George Mills, WHO radio, news, TV news, he'd say. So he kind of had a stilted delivery, right. but a wonderful person. Do they
0: call it WHO TV? No. No? They call it w- WHO.
1: Yeah, not W, as I got reprimanded my yeah. first. Because I did a radio and TV, too. They had a radio station, which is huge. A bigger, more powerful than the TV station, and I would love to on radio. Right. And I'd growing up in Chicago. Several people I know knew had driven through and would hear me on the radio. Yeah, I was driving through I eighty on the way home, and we heard you on the radio. So oh, wow. that was kind of a kick.
0: So Des Moines, Iowa, is I would imagine is a fairly decent sized TV market, right? Yeah, it was sixty five
1: at the sixty fifth yeah. at the time. Yeah, it was a good sized
0: market. So that was an accomplishment coming right out of college and landing a job there. How did that happen?
1: You know, I don't know. Um, I, we, like I said, we all had jobs getting out of school. We sometimes had, I don't think I had multiple offers, but a, a guy, they had a couple of Mizzou grads there. Uh, all with, They were all young because they basically didn't want to pay anybody anything. So, you know, they hire these kids out of college. And they knew that going to Mizzou, they could get people that could walk off uh, campus into the newsroom and, like I did, start producing the first day. So that's why they liked it. So they pretty much had a pipeline uh, into, uh, into Des Moines and, and many other places as well, and those kind of medium markets, as you'd call them, you know. And of course, here I am from Chicago, and I'm kind of arrogant, you know what, as we all are at that age. Like, oh, the small town of Des Moines. So, But it wasn't a small town. And no, it's a, I've and been it's a to state Des capital. And it's not a small town, yeah. yeah.
0: And then in 1979, you moved down the road, I guess. I don't know where Cedar Rapids is yeah. in relation to Des Moines, but I'll call it down the road. And you moved to another TV station, WMT. And there you're. You have a whole host of things. You're the bureau chief, assignment right. editor, etc. So tell us a little about that.
1: Yeah, it was just you know the uh, again there was a.
0: What ju- was it a bigger market? No, it's smaller, but it's there smaller. was a better opportunity. Better for you. View- paid yeah. a lot more. Yeah,
1: a lot more. Yeah. Right. So as the bureau chief, uh, was so great. what is
0: a bureau chief? Well, yeah, we had it was a, what they call a
1: split market. Sounds so very
0: you- CNN bureau
1: chief. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yes, it was it was a uh, CNNish. No, we had. Uh, Two major, three major cities in the market, uh, Dubuque, Cedar Rapids, and Waterloo, Iowa. Wow. So um, we had a little bureau there. We lived up there. It was like 60 miles or something from Cedar Rapids. And so uh, you covered that whole area of Northeast Iowa. And there was just two of us in the bureau. Actually, right down the hall was a U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley's office, so I got to know him very well. You did? He interviewed him all the time. Wow. Yeah, and He's he, still there. Still he's holding still in holding yeah. office. Yeah. I can't believe it. I thought he was old then. I right, was right. 40 yeah, <laughs> or yeah. something. You know, so. <laughs> I see him, and he's still there. <laughs> he's
0: still holding on. He's an amazing uh, right. guy.
1: And, um, you know, he was a conservative, still is, of course. So a lot of the uh, newsroom people, because there is, I would say, very much a liberal, I don't know if it's a bias, but certainly tendency in news, and they didn't like Grassley. They thought he was mean, and you know he's pretty no-nonsense type of guy. But I got to know him fairly well, and he's very, very bright. Obviously, knew the issues really well. What so was he? Sure he? Was he?
0: Know. What was he? Uh, was he senator? No. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. He was, he was already a senator. He was already a senator. Wow. Actually, he might
1: have been House of Representatives and then one Senate, but I don't remember covering a Senate race. No. So um, I, th- I think he was already a senator. Okay.
0: So your job was just to come up with stories. So how yep. do you do that? You can't. How do? You, how does a, how does a television station keep track of what's going? I've been to TV stations, and you see the assignment editor sitting there in all his glory, and he's got a multitude of scanners, and he's listening to the scanners. But that, I guess, is for crime and fires and stuff like that. How do they come up with just the regular kind of stories?
1: Well, um, the uh, dirty little secret of of tv news is a lot of them just rip and read out of the newspaper oh yeah so they get the morning paper and go oh here's a story oh, okay well i hated that because i just didn't want to copy what somebody else had done so actually in those days both in des moines and in waterloo uh we ran beats i'd go down to city hall i got to know people uh, they'd tell me what was going on i covered the city council meetings got to know the council people so that was a a plethora of uh, of stories right um, and then just getting to know people. Uh, there would be tip sheets that they sent around saying, yeah, "Have you thought about doing a story about this and or that?" So there were slow days there. Of course, it's a big ag state. Agriculture was huge, so I got uh, attenuated to agriculture. Really enjoyed doing a bunch of ag stories. Banking, which is very people don't understand the the, you know, farming's basically a gamble. So. These guys got to get financed for their farms, and it's a game, man. I'm telling you, it's a tough, tough game. Get your get your crop planted, harvest it, sell it, pay off your debts, and go again. And, do it again. And there were always you know, people trying to come up with new ways to do that. Wow. So I really enjoyed that and got to know a lot of. Uh, farmers and 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 folks in ag and so it wow. was it was fun. But running a beat is really yeah, and I think that's gone now. I mean, I uh, from what I see, right. but developing a beat and it's amazing what people will tell you. Right. and I think they just for various reasons. One is oh, if they get hot news, they just want to uh, leak it. Can I tell you about one story? Of that course, I, I broke yeah, yeah, as yeah. a beat reporter. Of course. So <clears throat> I, this was in Des Moines, and I was covering City Hall, and. There used to be these communications from the city manager to the city council. And it'd be a big, thick stack of stuff, like issue briefs, usually one or two pages. Well, nobody hardly ever read them in the press, but I started to read them all. And I read one, and it was about this family. We had just had the boat people come in from Southeast Asia, the baby lift and all that. And Iowa was was a Vietnam. From Southeast Asia, Cambodia, yeah, Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, Most of them were Cambodia. Oh, in
0: England, that was I remember that. Yeah, that yeah. Time. It was. It they was. They called them the boat people. The boat people. Yeah. Right.
1: So yeah. they came in and they got resettled. I don't know why, but Des Moines and Iowa was was a big as was Rancho, as I explained yeah. in my film later. Right. But um, so they came in and they were getting resettled. So the the city had various programs for them to help them. One of them was an emergency heat program if their heaters in Iowa gets cold. I mean, I'm talking really yeah. cold. So if your furnace broke down, it could be life or death almost, not that bad, but you know, it's you don't want a broken furnace no, no. in Iowa. Well, this guy had uh, this family, uh, the Vang family, I'll never forget them, they had um, uh, their furnace broke. And for some technical reason, uh, paperwork reason, bureaucracy, uh, this, the city staff had turned down their request. Well, the city manager had sent the request back to the council and said, you know, you should look at this uh, because, you know, these guys really need the help. Well, the city council, without reading it, you know, all these items come up on a docket. Number 170, i have a proposal to do this. No, So they just voted down a whole bunch of stuff. So I went out I, to the where the family was, met the family, interviewed them. I showed these little kids. They're shivering You're in front of camera. Yeah. yeah they're shivering in front of the of the non-working furnace I mean literally their lips are turning blue right wow. so I did that story and all hell broke loose and the one thing I've learned as a reporter is that if you show people in need the response from the public is amazing and they we had people calling and saying I'll go and fix that up that plant. I'll give them a new furnace they the city doesn't have to do it I'll do it and of course, the council was completely embarrassed, called an emergency meeting, which they never do, and then um, and then gave them the grant for it. Wow. And, so and there it,
0: was no rhyme or reason why they denied it.
1: There was, but it was, some, like I said, some Stupid, technical yeah. thing. I can't remember now, yeah. but yeah, some, which frequently happens in government, as in, in uh, corporations. I mean, there's so much going on, they can't pay attention to anything, right. but they, they had rejected it. so.
0: And you went. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it a lot today. But some of the things we're gonna talk about, you've become an accomplished documentary, historical documentary filmmaker. And in reading um, about you, um, during this time, you produced a series of Civil War stories.
1: Yes, in Iowa. So yeah. what were those? So um, I used to have to drive from Waterloo to Cedar Rapids, like I said, about sixty miles or so, and I go through these little towns on my way down. There was no interstate. Which was a blessing, looking back on it, because you you'd see things, right? right? And in the interstate, you don't see anything. Uh, so I noticed that there were statues to the Union Army in almost every town. I mean, really nice, beautifully statues. So again, I always, had always loved history. My first documentary was when I was in journalism school. I actually did one about Winston Churchill, the anniversary of his Iron Curtain speech, which was done in Fulton, Missouri, which is only 30 miles away from campus. So I went and did that as a documentary, my first one. Didn't turn out too well, but I learned a lot. Anyway, so I noticed all these um, statues to the Union Army and then uh, University of Iowa, which wasn't too far from Cedar Rapids. um, They had a very great archive full of pictures of Civil War soldiers and historians and everything else. So uh, that was uh, put together a five part series. And I like to say I did that before Ken Burns did the Civil War and he got all the acclaim and I got, you know.
0: So you did a little story on each statue.
1: Uh, I more or less tied them in together. You it did. was more by units because okay. the statues are usually to you know to units and where they had fought, and then kind of tied not just the statue but kind of right. the, the story behind it. Who were the guys? Where did they come
0: from? Right, okay. as much as I could get. And then during this time is when the whole American hostage Iran situation was going on. And then I read that you covered the return of the hostages from Iran right is that did you do that for the TV station in Cedar Rapids I did yeah and
1: there was a, uh, a woman named Catherine Cove I think there were only two or three women that were held um, with the American hostages when the revolution took place and she was one of them and her hometown happened to be like 30 miles from oh, okay. from Waterloo
0: so, so it was like a like someone in Rancho was a hostage it would be a big deal when they come back. Yeah, so
1: all yeah. the media would. Right. Well, even yeah. before they came back. So anytime something would happen, uh, you know, the negotiations, right. word of a breakthrough. Right. I mean, and her family was wonderful people. Yeah. You know, people always complain about the news media. Oh, they're so intrusive. And we are. And I always tried to be sensitive to that. But also, a lot of times you're a real consolation to people. They can talk to you. Now they have a conduit to get their message out, you know. And of course, they were terrified about what would happen to their right. uh, uh, yeah. daughter and sister. Uh, she was unmarried. But um, So I would go there. Every time there would be some development, I would go over there and interview her, the, the family. And have you heard from her? When, they got a letter once in a while. What did it say? And this was almost every time it went, it was a CBS affiliate. Our story ended up on CBS or parts of it every time because yeah. it was just – People forget the hostage thing just dominated news in America right. for the whole time.
0: So, did you do you get close to a story like that because you're dealing with it repeatedly? You know, do with, I get
1: close to it to the people?
0: It, yeah, or to the story itself. Did you ever meet the?
1: the I did. And I'll you tell did? you that story. but yeah. yeah. But yes, you get very close. Yeah. You get very wrapped up in it. You can't not help to. I mean. Right. Again, reporters are seen as cold and dispassionate, right. but they really feel it. I don't think that. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I've I, had a lot of people I say that. A, I
0: have a good affinity for reporters, actually, good. especially good. the high-level ones. I mean, they're celebrities nowadays. Yeah, yeah, which is,
1: I think, not a good thing. But anyway, yeah. that's neither here nor yeah. there. But, um, yeah, so I got to know the family very well. And uh, and like I said, it's, it's almost becomes your family. You become very right. concerned about her because you know the impact it would have of if course. they were killed her on the of family. Course. And, and you get to know the neighbors. You get to know the people in the town. And, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's really an emotional thing. So when it was announced that they were being released um, in the waning days of the Carter administration, uh, we flew to Newburgh, New York, which was an Air Force base, and then West Point, the U.S. Military Academy is near there. So the hostages flew from Germany. They'd gotten out of uh, Tehran. They went to Germany for the hospital, and then they came there. (coughs) So a crew, me and a cameraman, went from Cedar Rapids to to Newburgh, New York, where they came in. We filmed that, and then they went to um, West Point, and they were in the dorms at West Point. They were secluded from everybody, and everybody wanted to get interviews with them. Well, there was a guy from Waterloo who was a newspaper reporter named Jack Hovelson, I'm sure nobody's ever heard of him. This guy was one of the best reporters I'd ever worked with or seen. And he did an amazing thing, which is a real, a life lesson. All during her captivity, he kept a scrapbook with all the stories about her in the scrapbook. So when we went to West Point, and there was like a gate, I'll never forget, big gate. You couldn't get into the, door, or the area where the hostages were. He said to somebody, hey— I've got this scrapbook that we've kept for her. Can you go and give it to her and you know tell her it's from me with my card? He did. They took it in. He got the first interview with her, print or TV. It was just brilliant thinking. Wow. And, and what a way. She came out and talked to him, and then he put in a word for me. He said, well, you know, Channel 2 has really been covering it. She had no idea because yeah, TV course, and a yeah. So she said, yes, she did. not So we got the first television interview with her. So we were in, the in, like I said, West Point. CBS wanted it. Now, in those days, there really weren't satellite trucks and stuff. You had to get the video almost physically uh, somewhere. Thank God it was videotape, wasn't film. But we shot it, and they said, you need to drive it down to Block Rock, which is the CBS headquarters in New York. And I forget the guy told me, he said, you just take, you know, you get on here, then you get on the George Washington Parkway, and you take it, to this street, and then you take that street until the road falls apart. Literally, the pavement dissolves, and that's where we are. That's This is New York during the days when things were really rough. So we ran it down, got it, and we had the first interview uh, for the network and for us of anybody with Catherine Cobb on it.
0: Does that still exist, do you think, anywhere?
1: I've got it somewhere in a pile of stuff, yeah. but I've got so much stuff that, So that know. must
0: have been, I mean, I would have a million questions for someone like that. Was she receptive to your questions?
1: She was uh, very receptive. Uh, very, were they
0: traumatized?
1: You know, uh, obviously there was a level of trauma. She wrote a book called "Guest of the Revolution," so that should tell you something. Right. Now, I thought I expected her to be angry, or some of the hostages were angry, and 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 obviously traumatized.
0: Angry at the government.
1: Angry at just the just whole life, yeah. Yeah, not oh, life. The, yeah, the angry at what had happened yeah, to yeah, Ron. The angry that yeah, when yeah. they heard about the helicopter right. debacle where they tried to save them, right. they were really upset about that. Right. Uh, some of them, but she was more. Let's the only word I can think of is copacetic. More like oh, it's okay. Everything was fine. I wasn't missed. You know, it was a little out of mind. Uh, now I'm going to say this, and hopefully. Um, I've said it before so it's not world news and it's such an old event that nobody will probably care but I had a good friend <coughs> excuse me that I'd worked with in television news he had gone he had joined the State Department and um, he t- so I met up with him in Washington DC after I had interviewed her now there was another big news conference in Washington with all of that it was a big deal that was in some huge amphitheater or something, all the hundreds of reporters. He said the people that stayed behind in, in the embassy, because most of them had gotten out, they're all spies. He said all of them were intelligence officers. Her job was, she was head of what was called the Iran-American Association. Her job was to go out to parties, to, um, to events, and to meet the young movers and shakers of Iran, I have to say it right after the yep. guy got wrong right. the other day.
0: Yeah. I, Iran. Well, I've always said Iran. It yeah. wasn't until I came here where I heard Iran. And I, yeah,
1: Iran. I yeah. Iran. Iran. And, and so he said basically she was a spy. So I kind of, I can't remember how I phrased the question, but I said, weren't you involved in trying to really actively recruit and influence young power shakers in Iran uh, for the United States wasn't it your job, and I mean the whole room kind of blew up, right? I mean people were like <laughs> you shouldn't you know, so it was very Did interesting she it Basically, yes, yeah. she said yes. That was my job. Um, I Love the Iranian people and I you know she spoke Farsi or whatever yeah. they speak and uh, she um, I think oh, it's Farsi, but anyway, she was very close to the culture and so she liked it so but she knew her job and she again she would not have been taken captive if she was not no. undercover if if you know they'd have gotten her out she'd have gotten out of there but but no she was there wow yeah she's
0: still alive today she is think? yeah she is yeah Are you still I, in touch with her not i have no.
1: not been in touch with her for years no wow i that's think fascinating. i saw some news item late recently about it but um yeah yeah, yeah it was that's very that's fascinating useful. yeah
0: that's a great thing. I mean, that's history, right? I remember watching Yeah, I was in England, but I remember that was a very big deal. Well, moving on, this now brings us probably to 1982, must be close to there, and you end up in Sacramento. Right. So tell us about the switch. So you're in Iowa, and all of a sudden, you're in Sacramento. How did that happen?
1: So there was, I was that, you know, promoted from reporter to assignment editor, assistant news director. and. Um, there was a there was a consulting firm in Marion, Iowa, which, which is a suburb of Cedar Rapids. Yes, Cedar Rapids has suburbs. And uh, it's Frank and Magadan Associates, which was, is one of the largest television consulting firms in the country, and they had clients uh, all around the country. So one of them happened to be KCRA. And when an opening popped up at
0: KCRA, um, they uh, recommended me for okay. the job. I came out, did not So interview. you came for a job? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, KCRA, right. And as you say, you end up in KCRA TV in Sacramento. And then in reading your bio, again, you had quite the job. And again, assignment, editor, producer of special projects, which sounds really grand. It is managing the technical and editorial coverage of four Super Bowls. Yeah. uh, Covering the Reagan Gorbachev summit, and then the Pope's trip to California. So let's talk, what, what is um, the technical and editorial coverage of Super Bowl? What is that?
1: So what you do is, um, at the time, and even today, KCRA was one of the top stations
0: in the country. It so was, is KCRA downtown Sacramento? Yes. So I think I live maybe two blocks from there. They're at C Street over there. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's right. I, when I walk my dog, I walk right by it every day. You ought to go stop by. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so I know Bill George.
1: That's right. And they'll go, who? Yeah. Uh, but
0: yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway um, um
1: so the super bowl yeah oh so technical yeah so what you do is um in cooperation with other stations and with the network you arrange coverage of these events so you have to have this is the early days now when you have satellite trucks showing up right so and now people can go live from anywhere uh in in the world really uh so but you still have to do all these arrangements And so I used to start planning these things months out. And we worked with, we were an NBC affiliate. They still are an NBC affiliate. We also started working with CNN in the very early days of of CNN. So we would establish um, satellite uplink positions and then start to book uh, people for certain times because you had stations from all over the country with all, you know, three different time zones, all with different news times. So they would, you know, bebop in, feed their tape, do their live shot, and, uh, and on they'd go. So it, it was really kind of a um, stressful um, time management job, if you right. will. But
0: I met a lot of great people yeah. doing that. One. And you were an assignment editor there? Yes. Yeah. So I know what an assignment – tell us what an assignment editor is because they're kind of pretty influential, right, in a newsroom? Yes, I would say so. Yeah, um, so tell us what it is. Well, so
1: you come in early in the day, and, again, you assess what's going on out in the world. You've got, again, your different sources, story ideas from reporters. So you sit down and you kind of plan out the day. You've got so many reporters, so many photographers. Uh, what are we going to cover?
0: Again, so like, there's, You're like the general assigned in the army. Yeah, it send, wouldn't be that big, but you send yeah. off the, the camera crew. Yes. you go and cover this, you go and right. cover this. And so when they s- come back, do they come back to you, or do they just go and do their own thing?
1: They come back to you because you have then you have to schedule them edit time, okay? Uh, uh, working with the producers, what okay. show are you in? Because different stories for okay. different shows, so work with them if they needed more information on something, you try to help them get. You know, m- nail in uh, down more details, things of that nature. So you get this done. you would be there at six in the morning, and then by eleven or so, then the noon show's coming up. So you get the noon show on, and you think, well, everything's good for f- you know. We'll cruise the rest of the day, and then boom, something happens. Something happens, and right. you like tear everything up right. and And bang, are you listening
0: to scanners? Listening to scanners. And yeah. yeah. And yeah. there
1: were people that listened to scanners for us called yeah. stringers in those days that would would help us but yeah you're listening to the scanners you're trying to you know it's just a lot of noise people are calling in with ideas or did you know this happened right and and it was always good sounds like
0: a a fun job but stressful i would think very stressful yeah yeah and
1: i used to tell people i did that job for like six seven years and they go how did you do it that long
0: Because they don't last very long you should say i still have all my hair (laughs) (laughs) yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then the Pope comes to California. Now, I don't really know much about that. Did he come to Sacramento? No. He, no. C-
1: he came to um, um, different areas, L.A., uh, San Francisco, Monterey.
0: So the TV station had a coverage of that? Well,
1: here's what happened.
0: This is a, kind of a great story.
1: So um, the station was owned by a guy named John Kelly, an uh, old Irishman, Catholic, Irish Catholic and the pope i had actually covered uh, a papal mass in iowa before that he had come to iowa and um he um so i'd already covered one and actually covered uh, he'd walked somewhere like to a church or something i was actually within like five feet of him. it was amazing to do that so I, people like to say, well, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I said, well, I've covered three papal masses, so it's not once-in-a-lifetime. <laughs> but anyway, so they, they announced that he's coming to California. And it's, people are like, well, you know, big, it's a big deal. You know, it really is. Well, the Archdiocese of Monterey had an idea. They wanted every step, public step, the pope took. And I, this was, were their words to be on television in the state. So they went to KCRA because it was a powerhouse station and because it was owned by an Irish Catholic, John Kelly, and he said, we'll do it, we'll make it happen. So we put together a consortium of stations from around the state, and we covered every minute of the Pope's public journey to California. So that was a mass at Dodger Stadium, mass at Candlestick, the old uh, park in San Francisco where the Giants played mass in Monterey at Laguna Seca, which is this huge raceway. So I mean, the technical and logistical challenges were just amazing. And it took me months to plan it. And um, I mean, I was a wreck. But it came
0: off brilliantly. So the coverage of the Pope in California was managed at your TV station?
1: Well, actually by a consortium. But yes, in, in reality, it was us and Carowin in San Francisco that took took the burden the the main part of it and yeah we're we're the two that 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 put it up everywhere and then it was just run and I mean it was just it was such a home run and it was beautiful the way they staged things the way our cameras captured it there were a lot of people involved in it believe me on the technical side but uh, we had to put phone lines in but I did have one stroke of genius at Laguna Seca, which I don't know if you know, that's the raceway up in Sonoma. And I don't know how many, Think it like 100,000 people or something in there. It's like a huge bowl. We were put out so far away from the Pope. Thank God we had long lens cameras, right? But they hadn't run the audio lines out to the satellite truck where we were. We would have had no audio. What All we've seen is the Pope talking, waving uh-huh. right. his arms. Well, I looked up, and have all these engineers, you know, what can we do, guys? Nobody can think about it. I saw that they had the loudspeakers, the public address systems in. I said, just grab that, clip that off, run it in the satellite truck, and that'll work. And it did for an hour until we got the audio lines in. It worked. So thank God.
0: So here's one thing that I've met you a couple of times, and I always found you to be a very calm and, you know, happy-go-lucky. But you (laughs) must be very tenacious because— I know that having worked with producers and television people, I've seen them, they don't mess around. No. They want to get there. They want to get it. They get it. Yes. There's no no. There's no no. Yeah.
1: And I mean, there's been a few times when, yes. Yeah. When I was covering one of the big Spotted Owl protests up in Northern California, and they had a press platform. And some guy, they, you know, and I think it was the lumber people, the loggers, no, you can't come up here you know i'm like listen pal i'm coming up there and you're going off it if you know so you have to you really have to have that attitude yeah because if you don't there's a million reasons people don't want to let you do things you just gotta do people
0: behind you that will right yeah yeah Yeah. well
1: somebody will do it yeah Yeah. so but you just got to make it happen right
0: so i have a feeling that your documentary career which we'll get into in a minute was born here at kcra because you then went on and you had done some documentaries, but you produced a 90-minute documentary on the Vietnam War. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes. So what was, and we'll get into that, but what was that documentary?
1: Well, it was about uh, the war, and in the um, Capitol Park here in Sacramento, there's a memorial, and that memorial was, is done because of a guy named B.T. Collins, who was a legendary figure in California politics, uh, I'm still not sure which party he was. I know he worked for both parties uh, and uh, different jobs. But he wanted to have that memorial built. And Stan Atkinson, who was the legendary anchor man at Channel 3, uh, they were good friends. And he said, well, we can do it. We can get it done. So we did like a telethon, if you will. And um, we produced all of these stories.
0: To and we sh- mean KCRA. Yeah, KCRA.
1: Yeah. So... Um, what we did was we went live from the wall in Washington, D.C. on um, Veterans Day, November. And so, you know, we thought, well, we'd have the anchors there and then shoot it back and introduce all the stories from there and do interviews. You know, you know what it is a big, a big production. We had two satellite trucks and six cameramen and everything. So, so we're ready to go. We get into D.C. a couple of days early course to get set up. The largest snowstorm in mm-hmm. the history of Washington, DC in November. What or year something. are we in now? What year are we in? Of eighty seven okay. or something. And um anyway, so it was a I mean it was just a blizzard. And I remember we had a satellite truck, we had to get it kind of up this hill. And there was like twenty people, cameramen, reporters, everybody pushing it up this hill. Finally we got it up the hill. And it was just a scramble to get everything on, and, and and the lights, the cameras, everything's a mess in the snow.
0: Uh, and you're things, in charge. Yes. So pressure again. <laughs>
1: pressure again. But no, again, no, you have a lot no, of no. You, a lot of good people helping yeah. you. So, anyway, they all pitched in, and and boom, on it went. And the, again, the effect, it was kind of a disaster beforehand, but the virgin snow, the white snow, just made it look magical. Yeah. So we got on, and we did this. You know, if you want to build a, a memorial call 1-800, whatever it was, and make a pledge today. And, and they and, raise the money? And they raise the
0: money. Wow. And, now, ooh. I don't live very far from Capitol Park, and I've walked around there many times, and I've seen that memorial. Uh-huh. Is it – I have always thought it's a replica of the one in D.C., because I lived in D.C. I mean, it's not a replica in as much as the one here is round. Right. And, right. and the one – but it seems to be almost – very similar, It right?
1: is, and it has all the names
0: exactly. inscribed in, in it and everything, and wow. it's a circular. So what was your documentary? Was it just a general documentary on the Vietnam War?
1: Actually, well, did it have a theme? It had a theme, yeah. and um, we followed um, a guy who had been a— so B.T. Collins had lost his arm and leg in Vietnam. I should have said that earlier. So he was—you know, that's why he was so invested in it. And he had a great line, I'll never forget, during the, the blizzard in Washington— and there were these other veterans that were there had come out through the blizzard to see it. And, and at one point he goes, okay, boys, I got to move on. I'm starting to rust. So he <laughs> moved past them. So we followed uh, a couple of vets' uh, stories. Uh, one guy, his, his name was Colonel Bird, I think.
0: Local? Local vet stories? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And this colonel, I'm not sure if he – he was a friend of BT's. I'm not sure if he was from here or not. But it was an amazing story. And he, and, and he had been shot, uh, badly, badly wounded, and then managed to live for several years and then died. And his name wasn't on the wall in Washington. It just kind of, you know, unveiled kind of, a, again, technicalities. Well, he didn't die during the war, whatever. So anyway, we got him on that wall and then was able to build this one. Wow, so. very
0: nice. Well, listen, I definitely understand the world you come from because I've dealt in that world, and it's very impressive. Um, your stories of all, now, just to, just to elaborate, you've also had stories on CNN, ESPN, NBC, and a whole bunch of other uh, syndicated shows. Is there any one or two that you can quickly tell us that stand out, or were they just general stories?
1: Well, they're usually emergencies, so um, then that's when they use you to do a network story. They'd much rather have their own reporters come out. But um, there was a hostage situation uh, in Sacramento called The Good Guys. I Uh, remember. They made a movie. Yeah, they made made a movie. That's right. A feature film. That's right. So I was there with a satellite truck. I was kind of freelancing at that point. I'd left KCRA and i was on everywhere and it was just an amazing oh
0: story. i see so cnn will pick up the feed from you well no
1: they'll go just not pick it up but they'll go okay we want you to do oh I think the for lead them. story oh, okay at, at five or whatever time so and can that's you how go? you end
0: up on cnn right right I and see. then
1: the same thing during the earthquake of 1989 well, i did a bunch of things i think for nbc uh the top of their shows uh, again because we're there right? right so they probably would have taken
0: anybody but right, i happen right, to right. be the guy yeah, on the yeah. satellite track. <laughs> so espn would that have been a sports thing
1: that was a sports thing and actually it was a tragic story the kings had a number one draft pick i believe his name was ricky berry he was a son of one of the coaches and he, uh, he was our number one draft pick before the season started he committed suicide wow and uh it was it was tra- tragic yeah so. But I did that story, and okay. I, d- I covered um, a guy named Dave Drovecki he was a cancer victim. He'd come back after cancer to pitch for the Giants. I did that story, and then um, just o- other odds and ends stuff right. like that.
0: And at this point in your journalism and TV career, you now decide that you're going to make a switch, and you're going to go to public relations and marketing. Right. And you went to work for the California Manufacturers Association as their communications director. So, uh, well, first tell us, how. what is the California Manufacturers Association? Well, they've changed their name since I was there. They're now the California
1: Manufacturers and Technology, Technology Association, so there's a shout out to that. But they're uh, a political lobbying group, basically, that has lobbyists. Um, and go in to try and um, represent industry uh, before the legislature and the regulatory bodies. So good group of people. Yeah. Very dedicated. And you
0: were their PR guy that right? Communications. But how do you make a switch from that? Like how do you go from all these years in TV to that?
1: Like, well a how, lot of people happens? a lot of people do that. My route happened to be that I was a tennis player and I happened to play we happened to be in the same building. Now I wasn't a KCRA then. I'd been I went to a small company called uh, California News Satellite, which covered the Capitol. So our office was in the Senator Hotel. And one day this guy comes bursting in. He says, we need a video done. So we said, okay, we'll do the video. And I got to know him. He he was the executive director of the Manufacturers Association and got to know him. And so we played tennis together, Started, became friends, and our job opened up. He goes, would you be interested? And I said, sure. So uh, I liked it because I could— it sounds weird, especially listening to this, probably. But TV news can get to be, it, first of all, it's a real grind. And I was getting married, and I thought, God, I, you know, I've got my bag packed all the time. In fact, I'd been married, and my honeymoon couldn't go on a honeymoon because of the earthquake at at Candlestick, right. and I didn't see my new wife for like twenty days. Okay, been, didn't even see her.
0: That must have been popular
1: yeah <laughs> well it worked somehow yeah. she understood She's right a great lady so but so that kind of stuff And i thought god you have kids and all that how are you you know how can you do it um a lot of people do yeah. uh but i didn't want to be one of these people that yeah. never saw their
0: kids yeah you know i get it Listen, yeah. i definitely get it and then if that's not enough you're now appointed by the governor of california pete wilson to a position that has a very grand title, (laughs) Assistant Secretary for Marketing and Communications for the California Trade and Commerce Agency. Right. So how did that come about?
1: Well, um, I was working at the Manufacturers Association and they work, you know, they're more simpatico with Republicans than with Democrats. Democrats tend to attack business, if you will or, or c- certainly try to regulate it more than, than Republicans do. So we did a lot of programs with the governor's office. Not a lot, but a few of them. And certainly issues, one of the big issues was workers' comp reform. So we put on a big program on that, working with the governor's office. And uh, they just said, hey, would you, you know, would you like to come over? And it was during uh, the governor's reelection campaign uh, he was down in the polls some twenty points, and, let it, and I thought, I thought, yeah, I want to do it because, like, my again, my jump from TV to uh, manufacturing association, I knew there were new skills I could learn, rather than just doing TV show every day, right? So now I could like do um, public relations, do news releases, try to influence opinion do a newsletter, learn the print side, did a magazine. And the same with the governor's opportunity. I thought, well, there. You know, now I'm just not just PR, but marketing for the state of California. So underneath me was like Department of Tourism, uh, economic incentives. Wow. That, yeah, so there's a lot so of things. So it was an influential do. job. It was, and I got to report directly to the governor's you office. Did? And, so uh,
0: you're a state employee now?
1: Appointee of the governor, but yeah, I work, yeah. For, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. work for the state. Yeah.
0: Well, Bill, it's almost time for a break and then we're going to get into for the reason that you're here, which is your documentary filmmaking, but we're not done yet with your career. In 1995, you joined the Ford Motor Company and again, you serve in a number of senior roles. So how do you go now from working for the governor of California, presumably to Detroit? Eventually. Yeah. yeah. To work for the Ford Motor Company. Right. And you can tell us the job i mean i've read what you did but you had a number of jobs there so tell us tell us about your time at ford so there was a, a guy who was a consultant to
1: me and to the trade and commerce agency and got to know him very well he also consulted for ford so when they had an opening uh, for a west coast person he recommended me and um, i mean got the interview process was i think it was better part of the year it was oh yeah and they did four and i I thought this is never going to happen well finally they did come about and hired me and initially hired me to do west coast public relations we were launching our first alternative fuel vehicles uh, natural gas vehicles electric vehicles so a big part of my job was to go around and do news events you know showing off our uh, echo star electronic vehicle uh, electric vehicle and our natural gas vehicles and, and then um, so
0: most of your jobs were in the PR capacity in the marketing p- and public point, relations at that point
1: yeah uh, I later got to do more marketing but um, um, yeah uh, and then I was the California public relations guy so when things happen on the west coast California Washington Montana Denver you know those areas I would go out represent the company um,
0: so yeah so PR people, I know I deal with a lot of PR people. Does television work? Does a background in TV news serve you well to become a PR oh, person?
1: Absolutely. I don't see how people do it. I know some do and they're successful. Yeah. But without having worked in the media, right? Um, because the media is now, right? Now it's a media, and and you have to understand that um, and and know how to manage that. I think otherwise you're um, you're doing a disservice to your clients and a lot of corporate people. I mean, the pace. One of the hardest things for me was to accept and deal with the much, much slower pace of corporate America than than the news, and so that was uh, that was a challenge. So,
0: so having tried to vie the attention of assignment editors for projects that I've right. done, which is very difficult to do, but if you crack it, you crack it. Right. But I would imagine coming from that world, and you're now trying to do the same thing. That's probably the reason why, right? You know. If you want to get the attention of a TV station, you know how to do that. Right, right. And how to
1: yeah. write a news release. I right. mean, you know, so many of these, and I would fight with people all the time on this, but, you know, they wanted all to be positive and everything. Well, everything's not always positive. Right. And you got to show that you're handling right. your issues. You've got to find the news hook, basically, to get them to cover something. And um, I remember one of our good programs was, we called it Windstar Moms. And there was a group of women who worked at Ford who worked on uh, Windstar, which was our big mini yeah. And I they, had one. You know, they, <laughs> yeah. I hope it worked well it for you. It did, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> so yeah. they um, they did things uh, like they put the lights in so that it wouldn't shine in the baby's eye if the baby was in the car seat in the back. So they redirected the lighting and they did all these little mom touches. And that's the thing that, you know, the news, the news people eat up, um, right. you know, interviews with the moms, how, right. what influenced you. Wow. So, so that kind of stuff, rather than saying, what's well, in the best-in-class with world-class steering
0: and, the, you know, all this stuff that, that a lot of people want That's like, fascinating. You know? Well, we're speaking with Bill George, the highly accomplished Bill George, I might add. And when we come back from a break, we're going to discuss the venture he started in 2011, Nimbus Films and his new and successful career in documentary filmmaking. And we'll be right back. And we're back with Bill George, documentary filmmaker, historian, and CEO of Nimbus Films, a historical documentary film company with several historical documentaries produced. So Bill, let's discuss now the world of documentary films. So first of all, how did Nimbus Films come about?
1: Well, I uh, basically retired and um, had time, um, although I didn't formally retire, retire, but I had more time. My kids got out of college, and I'd always wanted to do my own thing, if you will. So specifically what happened was one day I was flying down to Los Angeles. I was doing some television productions for another company I was actually doing a series on prison reform in California. And the photographer that they assigned to me, who I'd never met, we flew down to L.A. together. And I said, oh, we got got to talking. And Stephen Ambrose, the great writer, has yeah. written a book about the Transcontinental Railroad, right. and which started in Sacramento and went up over the Sierra and joined the Union Pacific to to form the first Transcontinental Railroad in, in, the, in the world, so we got to talk, and it turns out he was kind of a railroad buff, you know, one of these people that loves to go out and watch trains and stuff. And he said, well, you know, um, so I said in the book, there's all these places that they mentioned that I'd never heard of. They're all in, in, from Sacramento over the mountain. Um, and uh, Dutch Flat, little town where uh, a lot of things had gone on. A Cape Horn, uh, a big rock, really, mountain that the railroad had gone around. Um, built over and then of course the tunnels up at Donner Summit and he goes I know a guy that knows where all these things are how to get there because a lot of them you can't I mean unless you know where you're going you're not going to find them even though the railroad line today even still uses some of them a place called, called Bloomer Cut in Auburn you'd never find it even on the railroad you could still take the train up there uh, Amtrak but you're just going through this like tunnel thing right you don't even know where you are so I said it would be kind of cool to put a film together, uh, explaining where all these things are, and uh, what you can see today. So that became it, and no idea that it would um, how it would be received, uh, but we did it, and on a
0: real shoestring budget, and we went to KVIE. And they loved it. Yeah, it we're like, going to get into that. So yeah. the uh, the first documentary film would probably would have been the Vietnam one, right? The nineteen minute Well, that Vietnam. wasn't when I was at Nimbus, though. That no, was, no, no, no. Yeah. But that would be the first sort well, of Well, the first one,
1: like I said, was at uh, University of Missouri. Right, did, right. Uh,
0: but the professional
1: The professional one, one. Yeah. yes. Yeah, would I be, guess. I mean, I'd uh, done some other. But you long weren't,
0: that wasn't your job. That was just uh, like a side thing when you did the Vietnam thing? Or did you well, know that Well, I was a
1: special project producer, so right. they said, do this. Do this film. yeah. And,
0: So now we'll discuss the films that you've made under Nimbus Films and we're gonna see that they're successful. So I'm gonna name them and maybe you can give me the elevator pitch synopsis of each one, just (laughs) a quick elevator pitch synopsis. So the first one, The Hidden Wonder of the World, the Transcontinental Railroad from Sacramento to Donna Summit, and as you said, that aired on KVIE, which is the Sacramento PBS station in 2012. And then you wrote a book as a companion to the film, Rails, Tales, and Trails, which I think is a great title. <laughs> so give us the quick pitch on that film. See sites that were built 150
1: years ago by hand over the Sierra Nevada that still carry train traffic today. It's one of the greatest uh, engineering construction feats in the history of mankind.
0: And what year would that have been, that you made that film?
1: Two thousand twelve. Oh, 2012, yeah.
0: 2012, yeah. yeah. Then 2014... You follow that one up with Newcastle, gem of the foothills. Right now, Newcastle in England. I know Newcastle. There is a Newcastle not far from here, right on the way to Auburn. Is that the yes. Newcastle? Yes,
1: it's on the yeah. way to Auburn. Yes, i right off Highway Eight. So give
0: us give us the quick synopsis on that one.
1: Well, they had seen the Hidden Wonder film, and um, the executive director of the Newcastle Community Association said, oh, we we'd like to have a film because there is a lot about Auburn in my film. because right. what had gone on with the railroad." So um, we did that. It was kind of an it was really kind of an oral history uh, of the town with some of the old timers. But it turned out very well, thanks to the people uh, who did the interviews. And you know, one thing interesting about that is, um, so they had like the Japanese internment there, right? They took it on very honestly. People s- talked about both Anglo people and Japanese Americans who had grown up there about. What had happened, and uh, it, that wasn't the whole focus of the film, but it really showed you the willingness of people to so, to address. So Newcastle
0: issue. had a Japanese internment camp.
1: In well, New- not, it didn't have a camp, but it had a lot of Japanese who were relocated because oh, it was an agricultural area, and right. so the Japanese worked as farmers, and uh, they were just some owned property, and they were just taken off
0: off their land and sent away. So then the following year, 2015, you follow that one up with Chinese builders of Gold Mountain. Right, and that came out of... Um, the transcontinental one? Out of the transcontinental yeah. one.
1: So here you could see... And I thought, doing the railroad, I thought, well, there must have been quite a presence here in California, and there were like 50,000 Chinese during the gold rush era. Um, and what? It, what was there anything to see today? So my approach has been, what can you see? What's there, because I'm TV, right? You want to show pictures. And it was just amazing. So went to Marysville, where there's the Bok Kai Temple. Uh, Went up to Oroville, where they have a tremendous museum with a lot of artifacts from the Gold Rush era. The reason was there used to be like a circus or a show that would go through California every year of Chinese entertainers. One of them was, see, a day in the life of a Chinese emperor. That was the show, right? So they had all these things they had brought from China and they left them in Oroville at the museum there. That was the last stage. And then when, as time went on, uh, even the Cultural Revolution in China, a lot of those artifacts were destroyed from that era. And they have one of the largest collections anywhere in the world. It's amazing to see uh, what they have. So we just went around and put that together. Again, what can you see? How
0: did they do it? Who were they? And we'll get into how you do these. I just want to mention them first. And then you follow that one up a year later with Beyond a Miracle, creating California's empire of agriculture. Right,
1: and I've always been interested in agriculture probably since my days right. in Iowa. And California's agriculture is amazing. There's more plants grown here than anywhere else in the world. We have a unique Mediterranean climate. We have the issue of water, uh, where we only have a precipitation, Uh, six months of the year at best so you have to store the water and hopefully we're having a good water year now thank god keep raining Uh, so how do they manage it how do these people you have to remember when people came out here for the gold they thought the soil was worthless they just thought well any place you have minerals you don't have good land that's just look around the world you know but that didn't prove to be the case and john sutter who was an early settler probably the guy who was established sacramento was very influential in uh, identifying uh, that and, and raising a large scale agriculture here in the Sacramento
0: Valley. And then a year after that, my favorite title, 2018, short, sweet history of <laughs> California strawberries. Yes. I would imagine that's um, a documentary about strawberries grown it is. in California. It's very right?
1: perceptive, yeah. yes. So they had seen the ag film and the agriculture film and just kind of wanted to do. Who's they? The strawberry? Uh, strawberry yeah. somebody. Yeah. yeah. It's actually kind of a state agency or one of these strawberry something board. And uh, so I went down to the Central Coast where they grow all these. And the story there was is really how many um, migrants, and I interviewed several of them, um, went from migrant worker to owning their own ranch, their own farm, their own trucking company. It's really a remarkable story. And these California strawberries are prized throughout the world. There's nothing like them.
0: And which of all, did did they all end up on PBS or just some, I know the strawberry one. All of them have. They all have? Yes. So, did you make them for PBS, or do you make them and then pitch them to PBS? I make
1: them and pitch them. Yeah. You do so, yeah. I have a good relationship with them. You and, do, and so you know, locally, they'll um, they they like them, and then my hope is, and a couple of them have been picked up and distributed nationally too. So,
0: so original initially, they just air here in Sacramento PBS.
1: Yeah, KBI. Yeah. yeah,
0: they don't. Do they go to other cities?
1: Well, yeah, in Northern California they do. They, they do? They go all the way from, uh, gosh, at least Modesto, maybe further south, yeah. uh, up to the north coast, uh, into the Bay Area almost. Yeah, all, it's a pretty big footprint. Wow. Yeah, they get like a couple hundred thousand
0: people will see these Yeah, Yeah, yeah. No, P- listen, PBS, that's, yeah. A, that's an accomplishment right there. And, of course, your latest film, which you are not done yet. you You have one more. And we're going to discuss that in a minute, but Rancho Cordova from Gold Rush to Space Age. So the latter not included, meaning the Rancho Cordova one. Do you have a favorite on the others? Probably my first one. The first um, one?
1: Yeah. I wish I had had a bigger budget at the time. I, I was pretty uh, uh, economical, but it right. all came out of my own pocket with right. no sponsor. So I tried to get sponsors for my films because you know the cost right. uh, just to make it manageable. But... Yeah. Um, um, yeah Yeah. it it turned out well it was just and it came together well so you know how it is some of them come together well and some of them don't and And i'd like
0: to discuss you know i think people are interested in documentaries yeah and we're going to discuss the documentary making process so obviously i'm a filmmaker i make independent films and when you make an independent film a narrative film you're following a script um So you have a beginning, middle, and end, and you just follow it. Obviously, you don't shoot it in order always. You may shoot it out of order, but you're always following the script. So I come to you and I say, Bill, I have a great idea for a documentary, but I don't know how to get started. So what would the advice be from someone like you who's made these films? Um, What is the advice? I have an idea for a documentary. Here's the idea. How do I start?
1: Well, the first thing I would do is, you have an idea for a documentary, what is it? Let's drill down on it. Um, Is it really a story? Has it been told many times? If so, what's unique about your uh, way you're going to tell it or do it? Um, The second would be, obviously, is it visual? If you're doing television, you have to have visuals. And um, I haven't ventured much into the area of reconstructions, recreations, but. I'm thinking I'm going to have to go there with some of the projects I have in mind. So right. And then obviously, what's your budget? You know, can you do it um, uh, under what your budget is? Uh, so those are the key things, I think, really to consider. And then fleshing out your idea and really thinking it through, you know, a lot of writers will tell you, write the last chapter first, because that you know, will get you. That's the other thing I tell everybody, right away. Abandon chronology at your own risk. If you don't do it in chronological order, and you can do it. I mean, obviously, what's his name? Nolan, the great filmmaker, has done that. But it's really tough. And if you have a simple, straightforward timeline, it makes things a hell of a lot easier. Even in my first film, my cameraman, who I said was a real buff and a great guy, railroad buff, he keeps saying, well, you got to do this part of it and do that part of it and do... You can't do all that, you know. Uh, uh, books. That's why I kind of wrote the book because I couldn't get all the things into the film. You're not going to get them all in the film. You have to have a, th- a theme, and you have to stick with that theme, and it's got to be emotional. You know, documentaries aren't made, and films not made to convey information. It's made to convey uh, emotion. Uh, if you want information, don't think you're going to put it into the film unless you're doing something really, really highly technical.
0: So. So shoot the film or make the film in chronological order? So start at the beginning and work through No,
1: it. don't shoot it, but have your timeline chronic. so you know where you're so going. So you
0: write it out first?
1: Generally, I'm not a great writer-outer
0: person to tell you the truth. I should be better. So you don't come up with a script of sorts?
1: I think In my head, I do. Yeah. I always hate to, and I learned this in news, I hate to have a... Uh, preconception because then you miss things I think and I know I would miss things in my Chinese film if I'd have pre-written everything and if I didn't go to these places first and start filming I wouldn't have seen I wouldn't have heard about where these Chinese graves are buried right over the hillside right. you know so you got to be careful that way but I try to make sure that I know what time frame I'm in I'm starting in 1850 and I'm ending in 1880 right. or something okay. and then just doing it your research, everything, kind of in that order. Otherwise, you're all over the place, right. and that costs time, and that costs money.
0: Right. How long does a documentary take for you?
1: Depends. That's always the answer. Um, yeah. Usually, at least six months. Six uh,
0: months? Yeah, at least. That's right through from the beginning to the end of post, to the uh, film is Maybe raiding. eight months if yeah. I'm thinking yeah. right
1: from that. I mean, when you get the idea to end. No, I'm thinking more filming production. So. Yeah, probably eight months to, yeah, something like that. And
0: in that eight months, you spend a lot of time researching? Is there a lot of research yes, time? Because on yours, they're historical, yes, right? Yes, yeah,
1: there's a ton of research. And, um, and you gotta, you got to dig it and you got to check it. And I have made a few research mistakes, but yeah. <laughs> we'll confess them here, but you got to be careful on your facts.
0: So I've certainly produced, I don't know, three, four, five feature films, narrative films. I'm involved in a documentary right now. It's about a person an actor who's had a very sort of exciting life, let's just say. But what I'm finding is that it never comes to an end because you interview someone who opens a bunch of doors, you then interview those people and more doors open and so on and you go on forever. How do you stop that? How do you not fall into that trap?
1: I look at it as
0: it's like a river
1: and the river's gotta flow. And once the river's done flowing, it's got to come to an end. So I know what you're saying. It's something that that we agonize with all the time, Uh, certainly did in the Rancho film. And um, you just got to say, that's it. That's all the time I got. That's all the money I've got or whatever and end it. But again, if you're not in, like I say, chronological order. And if the river, if you start going up the tributaries of the river, right. you may never get back to the river. Right, and that's the problem—is getting
0: lost. But when you do a film about a group, let's say I don't know, the Chinese builders, um, do you have? Do you come up with a? You must come up with a storyline. No. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you, it, in your head, you you yeah. know the story that you want to tell. Right,
1: and and in that one, I had a very. Um, you know, you talk about going on forever. Um, so, my time frame was the early pioneer era in California, California from 1849 to 1869. 1869 is usually considered the end of the pioneer era of California because that's when the railroad was connected to the rest of the country. So, I wanted to focus on the Chinese experience in that problem. So, that meant left, leaving out things like the Chinese Exclusion Act. Which is a huge thing in Chinese history, but I just I couldn't get there with the resources I had, and I just had to say next time on that one. Right,
0: and how many people do you
1: work with to make a film? You know, it's lots, um, lots of people. Um, do you have a crew? I have a team. I usually use, yeah. you know, of so graphics, camera guy, sound camera guy, camera, sound, uh, graphics, editors, special effects is big, music is big. Yeah. Um, so all those things, but I. Vary them sometimes because you want different perspectives in the film, maybe uh, by who can do what. So yeah, but it's it's and then you talk about the research
0: people and the you know all the people you're interviewing right. and all that. It's it's a lot. Yeah, and then going back to the narrative versus documentary in the post-production process, which is what I found in the film that I'm doing. That's where it really falls down. Um, because in a narrative film, again, you know where you're going; you just follow the script. How long does post-production take for you?
1: Um, it depends. Again, um, and then what you call post.
0: You know, we used to. Well, post be, would be oh, not know. the color, just the editing. Right, right. Get in a
1: rough cut. Right, right. Um, well, to me, that's production. Post is when you go in and clean everything up and okay. add, add the effects. So, um, but now, as I'm going to say. Um, you begin that post-production phase much earlier in the film, and so on the Rancho film, you'll see these rocket ships and things going up. Well, that's not what they look like in the original film, right? So you got to really punch those up and okay. and clean them up and all that. So it, it takes a lot more time on that end. So and then posting it, there's always the you know color uh, correcting, which will drive you just insane. Uh, the amount of time it takes. There's the uh, video, uh, the audio overlays, which are, you know, just tremendously time-consuming. Yeah. And uh, I remember on my Chinese film, Builders' film, so the opening music, it ends on with one note going, you know, and then kicks off. And my God, it took us, I don't know, how many days to do that, get that note of music, one note of music, right? Wow. But I just thought it was so important to set you up. You
0: mean get it in the right place? The right
1: place, yeah. Boom, and then the film would right, start. Right, I can't right. remember the image, but right. yeah. And music's hugely important. Getting the rights to music's hugely important and very time-consuming. That's
0: time-consuming.
1: And you know you got to negotiate and you got to –
0: And do you do most of this? Yeah, I do all of yeah all that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, I mean, listen, I have a great appreciation for (laughs) what that takes. So just a couple more questions, and then we're going to get into your latest film, which is, I guess, what we're really here for. Being in Rancho. As i told you the guys who work here work in the film business rafael come on in Um, so rafael is a very very phenomenal editor and he wants to be a director
1: as an accomplished documentary filmmaker what advice would you give
0: someone like me who is pursuing a career in directing
1: so what are some important things to know about directing as you Young people, as you get into it, or people—you don't have to be young anymore, by the right. way. no, no. A lot of people, older people, can do. It. And sure. I, I actually taught a uh, class at the Learning Exchange, and there's a lot of people that came in. They had ideas, and so I worked through some of these wow. things with now them.
0: There's a flashback. The Learning Exchange, I mean, the Learning Annex—is that what you mean? Was that what it was called? I call it was called. Yeah, exchange. Annex. Wow, that's, but that's I think, a flashback, right? Yeah, there. I know. I don't think they. That I, was I, everything's, usually popular. I know it annex. was. It yeah. was.
1: Yeah. So anyway. Um, just study the history of filmmaking. Study great films. Uh, I would say you know just get a good uh, appreciation. Read movie reviews, which are often good, sometimes not. But right. uh, they, some of the film critics um, uh, are, are good. Um, and get an understanding of, you know, again, nothing's new under the sun, uh, especially in film, which is now, what, a couple hundred, hundred years old more um so see a variety of filmmakers and then once you're actually doing it the first thing is to be as organized as you can be um and go out because again time is money and you know don't let people bamboozle you into spending all kinds of money uh, on a project make it simple uh as simple as you can i learned at missouri school of journalism to, as a photographer it was wide Medium close cutaway, wide, medium, close cutaway. You're
0: listening to that, Rafael. And they said, Wide, medium, close cutaway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have cutaways, you've got nothing, all right? Because right. film is a language, you have to learn the language. What's a jump cut? Now, I know these things have broken down over time where you'll see jump cuts. I don't have to do I need to explain a jump cut, I, may, I probably do. I mean, if I'm talking no, to I don't Charles, know what a jump cut is. okay, so if I'm talking to Charles and I'm interviewing him and he's sitting in a chair, then the very next shot can't be a shot of the empty chair. I have to show that he left the chair. Uh, yeah. So I'm interviewing you, and then I do a cutaway of Raphael in the hall, and then I can come back to the empty chair, I and, see. and he left. Yeah. So, but people, you know, I don't even know, crossing the axis, there's all these technical terms that people have violated so much that I don't, it's like grammar, what's right. good grammar, I don't know. But I would say wide, medium, close cutaway certainly makes it yeah. easy to assemble a project uh, and, and know that you can get to an end. So
0: the other one that resonates with me and Rafael, you should resonate with you, is being organized. You have right. to be really organized. Um, exactly. Well, enough of the film lessons. Now we'll <laughs> get on to the Rancho Cordova film. So tell us the title. Um, Roger
1: Cordova. Yeah, the history uh, the gold, from the gold rush to the space race. So
0: tell us, first tell us, give us a, the, the same quick synopsis of the film.
1: It's a portrait of, of a mid-sized suburb that has had an enormous impact on the course of American history for almost 150 years. It started with the gold rush. Uh, the gold rush went through here. There were remnants of it. The American River was one of the big... Uh, sites of the gold rush. Uh, the first train in the West went by uh, right through Rancho, uh, then agriculture. So it went all, through all these things. And then in, in the modern era, since World War One, Mather Air Force Base, which had a huge impact uh, on the military, on the defense of the United States, uh, then, you know, building a strategic air command here, uh, all the impact it had. And then, you um, uh, of course, Aerojet General, which built the uh, rockets that right. took man to the moon. Right. But again, everything is always people, right? News is people. Films are people. So those are all things, all those things. So fortunately, we were able to get, I think, some really good interviews with people whose fathers. And that's one thing I'm looking for is more. If you're out there and you were at uh, Mather or you were an engineer at Aerojet, you know, contact me because I'd love to talk to you. Kind of hard to find some of those folks now as time has gone by. But telling that story through what did it mean to the community? What, how did it impact? And Rancho went through a tough time at the end of the uh, Cold War, and again I found the people I interviewed, and thanks to them, many of them, Rancho Cordova, city council people, former council people, all in you know the community spirit here is, and I just don't say that because did the film. It's just amazing. Yeah. Um, but it went through a tough time. Uh, at the end of the uh, of the Cold War, when the defense, defense budget cuts kicked in, the air base closed. It went from a transition as one of the really first suburbs um, after the war, World War II, uh, to a period of decline. And they took that on amazingly. And the city has been able to rally, uh, to incorporate, and to take matters in their own hands. So it really is a testament, I think, to the yeah. people the film, that are here.
0: I've watched the film. Well, we all have here. I've been here three years now with the film office, and I've with this podcast we've interviewed people like Linda Budge, who is in your film, uh, Cyrus Abba, who has you know who's been here since the city um, was um, commissioned. So I've I've heard during the interviews, you know, they've told me the history, and, and but it's piecemeal, you know. Cyrus will give you his version, Linda, etc. But then watching the film boom, it put it all into perspective. It's like now, okay, now I completely understand, because you did a very good job in the chronology of it, and it was very, very well done. Um, How did the film come about?
1: Well, Mike Miranda, who you've interviewed, um, I've known Mike, in fact, we worked together uh, at the trade and commerce agency that many years ago. Oh, you did? Yes, and we've been friends ever since. Even when I was in Michigan, we stayed in touch. Uh, and Mike is very involved in Rancho, especially the Sports Hall of yeah. Fame, and I don't know how it happened, if it was Linda Budge or some of those folks that went to him or he went to them, uh, but they said, hey, let's do a history of Rancho Cordova. So it was mainly through Mike Miranda, uh
0: that it came about. Wow. Did you learn anything about Rancho that you didn't already know when you made the film? Well, again,
1: like you said, I knew bits and pieces of it, um, but I hadn't put the whole narrative together. And I think that's what – you see how you know through chance, circumstance, or hard work, and it's probably both, all of these things happened. uh, And it's just amazing. And there's a lot more to the story. Um, We have an interview with a guy named uh, James Scott in there who's a historian from Sacramento Public Library. And he coined a phrase, which I couldn't work into the film – why couldn't I work into it? Well, I could write a book about that. It's just hard to get once you get themes going to get out of them and back in them again. That river concept, but he said Rancho, in the nineteen forties on, had a concept of air mindedness. When air travel, when air was all that was kind of unknown or new, like like rocket ships are today, just bringing that in the community and how that just kind of fostered and built upon itself. So. It's an amazing, amazing story. Um, one of the stories I want to check out was apparently when, as Aerojet was going down, a lot of the engineers were looking for jobs, and they got jobs at Sacramento State, which apparently has one of the top engineering
0: and mathematics school in the country. It does? So,
1: so that's how those things happen.
0: Okay. And the film is perfect timing, right? It's the 20th yes. anniversary of the corporation of right. Rancho Cordova. Exactly. So the film, I would imagine, is going to be very involved in those celebrations. Is there any, do you know of any plans that they have with that? Um, I hope
1: so. I hope it's very involved in the celebration. I think it, it certainly will be. should be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I'm,
1: I'll be working closely with the city staff to uh, identify those opportunities. and, and should. Because, yeah. you know, when you're a filmmaker, you like to show your film. Of course. Yeah, You want people
0: to see it. You want people to see it. Um, and is PBS going to be airing this one? Yes. Yeah. Um,
1: hopefully in, um, I just heard, probably in March. But, you know, you never know. So that's what we're aiming for. But they saw it. They loved it. They actually, I approached them before we even did it uh, to explain it to them. They wrote a letter of support for the film. So, uh, And they saw it. And, and they, I will say they loved it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, listen, PBS and NPR, PBS, the same kind of thing, they're a, they're, they have very high quality standards. They so do. So the fact that you have all your films on there, I think, is a testament to the work that you do. So, Bill, as we get close to finishing here, and I have to say it's been a fascinating show, uh, what is next for Bill George? I'm sure you have a lot of ideas. So tell us what's next for you, and what ideas do you have?
1: Well, I... Not sure exactly what's next. I've been talking about doing more on Rancho Cordova, uh, a part two or an expanded part one. So I'd have to think that through because that's going to be a tough one because I hit the high, hard ones in the film. And, again, you get off on tangents. But I think there's a lot there, so we'll have to see that. We're going to, you know, meet uh, soon.
0: And your films are 30 minutes, right? They, yes, They're generally, all 30 minutes?
1: Uh, generally, yeah. The, the, the PBS window is 26. Yeah. But I made a longer version for the
0: city. Do you so. have plans to ever do, like, a long documentary? Like, a you know, hour and a half, two hours?
1: Um, I wouldn't say forms. plans, but, I, I mean, that's... You would, though? Yes. And yeah. so the idea I have, the one that I think I could do... Well, I could do... I, you know, to me, the, I like the <coughs> the shorter one because the pace just couldn't move. Right. And when you get longer, then it's tough to keep the pace. But I want to do one on a guy named John C. Fremont. And he was, or Fremont as he pronounced it. Fascinating story. This guy covered more territory than Lewis and Clark back in the days of exploring, Uh, explored the whole West, made three major trips from St. Louis to the West Coast, was married to a fascinating woman, very involved in politics, was the first presidential candidate Of the Republican Party, uh, before Lincoln, um, was an uh, early—you know—wanted to free slaves before Lincoln ever said he wanted to, and somehow this guy's got a very bad rap in history. I mean, he was vain apparently; he ticked people
0: off. Wow! But um, but a free thinker. Well, Bill George, thank you so much for being with us here today. Uh, but before we come to a close, we always end our show with a lightning round of fun questions. Okay. I'm not sure if you know what they are, but would you like to take a bash? Absolutely. Okay, so here we go. So, And everybody does this, by the way. So tell us one word that best describes you. Enthusiastic. If you can be one person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why? Julius Caesar, to see what the
1: civilization of Europe how That occurred and how we got to Britain. Wow,
0: that's a very quick answer, so that's a real answer. <laughs> what is your biggest pet peeve?
1: I don't really have many pet peeves. Um, I'll try to get over that because maybe pet peeves are pet pee- by pet peeve. Because if you get tied up in the little things, um, then that's a problem. But okay. I'd say bureaucracy. I've had a deal, we all have, right. you know, when I did the uh film, I'm, I'm going too long here, but when I did the film on the uh, Vietnam War, I remember. Homeland Department of Homeland Interior, something under who we had the jurisdiction over the Wall. I had to fly back there to get a permit. I had to fly to Washington. In person? In person. They wouldn't give us a permit. We told them what it was. And it was some bureaucrat that had this office and this woman. And she made me wait. She made me wait in the anteroom of her office for two hours. I went in there. I spoke to her for five minutes. She gave me the permit. But you know that That's kind of stuff. Power.
0: It's just a power. Just trip. power, and yeah. I just can't. You know. That would be a pet peeve. Yeah. For sure.
1: <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Forever.
0: <laughs> what's your favorite historical documentary of all time? Well, not of all time, but what's your favorite historical documentary?
1: It's one that I saw when I was a, a kid. I was probably twelve, and it's what really got me interested. I think in filmmaking and PBS. I think it was a National Geographic special did one on the odyssey retracing the steps of the odyssey i've never forgotten it i haven't been able to find it it's got to be out there somewhere Uh and it it gave me this idea kind of gosh they write about you know the cyclops they write about the sirens the songs where they had to tie the the crew down because the music was so beautiful and they went this and they did this and they went to malta and they went to you know could there's a like a a, a sound like a siren sound that goes through these cliffs from the wind. Could this have been that place? And then, of course, Detroit. And it's just—it was just amazing.
0: And you were how old?
1: Probably ten or twelve. Wow, I'm and thinking. you still remember oh, it? In vividly, that I mean, it, yeah, vividly. Cause okay,
0: it, it was just magic to me. So, if I'm in the George household and I'm looking through Netflix, your history, or other streaming services, what will I see, Bill George watching?
1: You know, I don't watch a whole lot of uh, TV. No. Um, Netflix would be the big one, and um, now we have Apple TV, so there's so many good things on, you know, so uh, so we've been watching uh, some of those, just saw a uh, good documentary on, um, actually something when I came to California. The avalanche um, up at uh, what ski resort was it? They had, and Anna Conrad was the one right. who was buried in the avalanche. And it was a fascinating documentary. They've done a wonderful job. So
0: you watch documentaries primarily? Barely, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: I don't watch many. I mean, I watch The Crown. I'm kind of a
0: sucker for you the uh, for the. Yeah, uh, I can't break myself to British watch that, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any hidden talents? I mean, you have a lot of talents, as I found out today. But you have a hidden talent that not many people know about.
1: I'd say singing. I, I want to be a singer. You but, do? Uh, I don't know if I'm very good at it, but no. that would
0: be my. But you, you, know, you think? Thing to well, do. you must think you're okay, right? I'm okay. Yeah, yeah
1: I, I like to listen musicals. I'm a big musical person, so. I hope you're happy now. That's out of <laughs> Wicked, so. You know that wasn't too bad, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's my end my career? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then finally, what project are you working on today that you can't stop thinking about?
1: The Rancho film, Till It's Done Done. Till you know, It's Done Done, yeah. yeah. getting it on the PBS and, and all that, so yeah. Oh, I'm also... I, actually, I should say this is kind of an announcement. I wrote another book, and it's about... Um, it's called uh, Victory in the Pool, and there was a group of swimmers from Sacramento from about 1964 to about 1972 that won 19 gold, Olympic gold medals. This was the number one hot spot for swimming and it's all forgotten now. So swimmers like Mark Spitz people will remember, Debbie Meyer, who They were from here?
0: Yes. I remember Mark Spitz. Yes. yes. He's from Sacramento. Yeah.
1: Well he grew up here and he then did. Yeah. And then he grew up here and then when he was about thirteen, he he went to the Bay Area, swam for another club, but then for seventy two, he bombed in the sixty eight Olympics. For 72, he came back here to go to the coach, Sherm Shavor, who had trained him as a young man. And then that's how he won the uh, his record-setting seven gold medals in the 1972 Olympics. Being a Jewish-American, of course, that was the Palestinian uh, takeover of the of the Olympics, the hostage situation right. where they killed right. the Israeli team yeah. members.
0: And that's, so that book's coming out? That's coming
1: out in yeah. May. I have a publisher, and yeah. it's all— Well, look at you. So okay. I've been working on that, yeah. you know. Proofing a book and editing a film at the same right. time is not ideal. So you're busy. Ideal.
0: Yeah. Yes. Well, that's about all we have time for. Bill George, CEO of Nimbus Films, documentary filmmaker, historian, renowned television man, and many, many more. Thank you so much for your time. We truly appreciate you. And I really enjoyed our conversation today.
1: Thank you, Charles. and It's been great meeting you. and continued success in all your endeavors here on Rancho Cordova.
0: Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to the Rancho Cordova podcast. And until next time.